welcome to the Book Cave. Today I'm delighted to be interviewing notable author Graham Kinross-Smith. Graham, welcome to the Book Cave. Great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Graham Kinross-Smith has been on the Australian literary scene for over 40 years, uh, publishing his first book in the early 1970s and going on to become a prolific eclectic and award-winning writer and a pioneer in teaching creative writing. It's quite a, uh, a CV, Graham. Very impressive. Now, you're published in fiction, non-fiction, short story, poetry, and you're also a photographer. Wonderful. Yes. How did you come to writing? Well, it's, it's where life takes you, in a sense. And I came to writing... I began to realise that I might want to write creatively when I was finishing university at uh, Melbourne University in the uh, late 50s. Yeah. Uh, and I went to my tutor to farewell her and say goodbye and say, uh, and I said to her, I'd, I'd like to do some writing. And she said, oh, yes, essays, um, you know, feature uh, uh, no, no, academic art. No, I said, no, I think, I, I think I'm heading towards poetry and fiction. Oh, well, um, do you know any writers? I said, no, I don't, actually. And she said, well, good luck. <laughs> so this was the, acad the academy looking at me as somebody who wanted to write creatively. That's, that's where it began. And uh, I began by writing, well, short fiction, I suppose. And then I got involved in... Um, commissioned and uh, freelance journalism about the Murray-Darling River system, which satisfied my, um, oh, you know, my keenness to travel around and meet new people and see new vistas and so on and so on over quite a number of years, actually, and it turned into a book at yes. the end. Now, that's uh, this... Your second the book, of the, book Murray, the yeah. book of the Murray, mm. which was published in 1975, mm -hmm. and you've contributed a really beautiful chapter, mm -hmm. um, which really tracks the Murray from its source up by up near yes. Koryong in yes. the Snowy Mountains all the way to the mouth in the beautiful Koorong. Across the beautiful Gulwa Barrages, yeah. you know, which was quite a privilege to do, actually. You had to get special permission to drive across. The Gulwa Barrages. Yeah. Do you want to explain well, you, that you, Well, you go from island to island, ah. sometimes through water. Yes or in those days, certainly, uh, with the Murray mouth over over here that you can see out of the corner of your eye where the it issues into the sea. And you go from island to island and it puts you into the Coorong, really. Extraordinary. But most people have never done that, of course. No, no. So, yeah, that was... Uh, there were parts of the Murray that when we were preparing this book, I hadn't, as it happened, visited, and some of them were in South Australia, so... We did this long trip and wrote some articles out of it and built it into the book. Yeah. You actually write about the Murray, which has become quite a contentious issue in modern times, yes, the whole yes, of the yes. Murray-Darling Basin mm, and the mm. the terrible sort of lack of water yes. that's running through yes. the Murray yes. and, of course, is having a huge effect on the beautiful Coorong. That's right. Um, that's right. You actually write, I think, quite with a great deal of prescience in 1975 more than a river, an influence, a theme, a beneficence that spreads mm, into country. Mm, and I think mm. that's a really beautiful, not just a beautiful piece of writing, but a very, um, as I say, a very prescient piece of writing, mm, given mm. the current state of play. So what's your, you've, you obviously became enamoured of the Murray. Yes. In, oh, the, yes. in that day. Yes. Just what's your take on it now? Well, I'm still just as keen to see it wherever I can see it, yeah. you know. 
but I am worried about the uh, filching of water in the upper reaches of the Darling system. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've seen the Darling at Burke, uh, and I've been up to the Burke-Hungerford Road that Henry Lawson walked wow. uh, to see some of the outliers of the Darling system. Uh, and, uh, boy, that's, you know, completely different country. And um, So you, you're concerned with water at all stages of the the process, really. So that's my concern about it now. That uh, Do you see a solution? Do you have thoughts about a solution? Well, um, I'm not expert enough to know whether I'm talking sense, but um, I really think that there may have even been corruption at Oh. You know, at the upper level, and you could get rid of that. Yes, you could get you could change water rights, as it were. That's yes. what they've always talked in terms of water rights. Yeah, it's a it's it's a part of Australia, isn't it? It's mm. such a huge contentious issue. But mm. it's interesting in your wonderful book, um, Australian Writers: An Illustrated Guide to Their Lives and Works, where you talk about the lives of 54 Australian writers right from the very early white mm-hmm. settlement. and What uh, contention, et cetera. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, when you write about Judith Wright, you actually write something or she says something quite remarkable, I think, which is about Australians still don't live in their country, mm, that we mm, haven't really become mm, Indigenous mm, to the country. Mm, mm. And that's partly because she sees it that we don't yet see the land as something to value and take care of. That's right. We... I don't know that we can ever psychologically get to the point that the country is for Indigenous people, and that is the sense of country mm. and the uncanny things that happen as a result of that. You know, I've heard of cases where um, Aboriginal people know somebody's going to come over the hill almost when they're going to do it from far distant, you know, wow. this sort of uncanny yeah. connection with moving through the landscape and so on. So, uh, yes, all of, all of that. Yeah. Now, you yourself have a real interest in landscape too. You have something, a, a property at Port Campbell? Yes. Down near the Twelve Apostles, yeah. a very famous, yeah. um, iconic area on the Great Ocean mm. Road mm. with those wonderful stacks, those rock stacks mm. that tourists Which are diminishing, to. of course. Yes, indeed. Yeah. I think there's, what, eight or nine of them now? Yes, that's right. Not so many. <laughs> but we won't tell anybody. No, no. <laughs> So tell us about that. Well, um, I mean, this takes me right back to the first book I did, which was Mankind Spies, which was for kids interested in writing in yeah. schools and so on and so on. I think you have a copy of that just uh, there, do you? Yes, I have somewhere. Um, <coughs> yes, I have Mankind Spies. Uh, with the planning... <laughs> the oh. planning... Of my notes for the oh. creation of this book as the cover. Wonderful. You know. um, so uh, I'm turning that sort of thing into account all the time I'm working down near Port Campbell. Right. But that came about by pure happenstance. Uh, I used to take my family, my kids, who are now in their mid-50s, uh, camping at Peterborough, Port Campbell, and... Uh, uh, yeah, but basically those two places. And at the best time of the year and their only time of the year for a break, the gales could blow the net apart, uh, the, the tent apart, yeah. and we'd be sleeping in water and so on. <laughs> so I decided I needed something a bit more permanent, and I went to farmers and said, you wouldn't have a spare shed, would you? You know, no, no. Real estate said, no, you'd have to buy 50 acres, blah, blah. 
So I went into visiting a couple of farms. I left my details with them and said, you know, if you hear anything, and came away thinking, well, I've done all I can at this stage. And note about six months later on Butcher's paper from one of the men down there saying, Worry Baptist Church is up for tender, come and have a look. And I went down and I got a builder to come and say, yes, beautiful, solid hardwood floor. The ground here moves up and down, so you'll have to be prepared for that. Yep. But otherwise a sound building, bought it for $7,000 <gasps> with an acre and a half of land. Wow. And it's been in the family and used by the family and used by me. I've written the better part of or a considerable part of four books probably down there. Yeah. And I've just recently had <coughs> my kids and grandkids in a house to sleep 10 during the busy part. But, again, the only time that they're getting a break and yes. their parents are getting a break, oh, they've just had a ball down there in the last couple of weeks. Um, but it is a completely different world. It's a world where you're talking to uh, a service station owner who is on the the SES, the emergency services, yes. so on, and you can see him uh, practising abseiling up the cliffs to do this and that, and he's there when the bodies are plucked from the water and so on, and when people are swept off, you know, wave. Uh, uh, like a Joanna's Beach and things? Uh, yeah, but there are um, wave platforms, which and you learn this as a diver. I do quite a lot of Free diving down there, oh. mask and flippers and down into the yeah, deep. Wow. Where the sharks, I know where the, the old Port Jackson sharks are. They park along this. Oh. I've written a poem in one of those books about yeah. it. Um, and you can go down and almost nudge them, you know. They're just sort of sleeping there. <laughs> How big are these sharks? Oh, they'd be yeah. so long. Uh, and quite harmless unless mm. you really annoy them. And, yeah. you know, so, anyway, there's all of that in Lockhart Gorge, and that leads me to international conversations every time I come out of the water because there'll be Norwegians, there'll be all sorts of people asking me, what did you see, you know? And I say, well, not a great number of fish. Sometimes you can see a wall of fish, you know. Wow. But that's rare. Yeah. But I tell them about the sharks and so on, and the mothers clear their kids out of the, <laughs> out of the waves when I, Just that word <laughs> when shark, I yeah. say it too loudly. Um, one of the best days there was uh, with a group of uh, Arnhem Land Indigenous teenagers who were obviously way out of their own territory yeah, looking yeah. at this place and they came over to talk to me and I said, well, very different water from yours in Arnhem Land, freezing cold, mm -hmm. you know. High five, high five. I thought that was good, you know, right across the continent. <laughs> so you water, say it's, it, this water. is very different, this place, Port Campbell, where you have your... Mm. Church, mm. your church, mm. Mm. a kind of uh, religion of a different sort. <laughs> when I first got there, my great mate, dairy neighbour, uh, Catholic dairy neighbour, he said, look, there are Baptist cows down here oh. and Catholic cows down here and they get different treatment on the roads, you know. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Now, Graeme, you have a long and illustrious history, actually, of engagement with Australian, um, with Australia and in particular Victorian writing, mm -hmm. and you were on the editorial board of Overland, is that right? No, I well, no, not on the editorial board, but I used to go to some of the editorial meetings. Right. Stephen, Murray Stephen Murray Smith. Stephen Murray Smith, yeah, yeah. yes, indeed. I have some and, of his uh, books up there. Even in the days when um, 
Uh, come to me in a minute. Uh, names, names. Now I'll come back to well, that. You yeah. had Rodney Hall, who was the editor of the Australian, yes, he was the editor. and Bob Poetry. Sessions, yeah, who went on to head right. up Penguin. That's right. Of course. That's right. So you actually were coming through this very rich, would yes. you say, rich literary, yes. cultural yes. period of Australian life. Yes, yes. Which was not, I mean, um, stop me if you want to go elsewhere, but no. which was not um, fully serviced, if you like, if that's the term. When I started the first creative writing tertiary stream in a vocational writing di- diploma and then degree at the Gordon Institute. Yes. Right. I could say to my students, um, you know, look at Steinbeck, look at Hemingway, look at it. and there would be umpteen books which showed where these writers lived, pictures of them in action, talking about how they wrote, how they worked and what was significant to them and so on. Nothing for Australia. I couldn't say anything couldn't turn my students to anything. And that's how that Australia's Writers came about. In the 70s, I decided, well, I better I better provide this book. And do something about it, yeah. which you most certainly did. Yeah. And you write so eloquently about the likes of Patrick White, Judith mm-hmm. Wright, um, mm-hmm. you know, a great many of our uh, 20th century writers, mm-hmm. um, as well as some of the 19th century. But you must have interviewed some of these people. All of them. All of them. Well, well, all the all, living ones. All the living ones, yes. How extraordinary. Uh, well, it was it was seven years. I'll tell you the, the story, basically. It was seven years of work fitted in between Deacon, Deacon and Gordon. Well, no, Gordon lecturing and then Deacon lecturing. Yes. Right? Uh, sometimes taking the family, but more often I had to drive myself, sleep in the back of the station wagon, wait in a strange outside a strange town until the pubs had closed and I felt reasonably safe going to sleep and then go on with the photography next day and the interview next day and drive myself, you know, and sometimes I drove, drove myself to Woolworth to go to talk to Bruce Dorr. I had not realised how many body salts I was losing every day and I was not safe to drive on the road. I had to oh. be, I, I managed to get to him, but I was hospital overnight to put the, the salts, salts body salts back. Wow. You know, that sort of thing was going on. Anyway, seven years of that all over the country, including WA, including very lucky breaks, for instance, with Randolph Stowe, who I'll talk about oh, a bit later. Yeah. Um, Two uh, New Orleans, isn't it? F- both photographically and um, literarily yeah. uh, with all of these people. So anyway, you go through this process and here's Bob Sessions at Nelson. I <clears throat> submit it to them. Dinny O'Hearn, I don't know whether people would remember oh, Dinny. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Right. Dinny O'Hearn was their publisher's reader. He read the manuscript and said, Yes, this is a goer. Go ahead with it, Bob. So we go ahead with it. Uh, really meticulous editorial process before you get mm. to the stage of sending it away for printing and the illustrations and so on and so on. Anyway, to cut a long story short, at the end of the process, Yes, it's in Singapore. Yes, it's being printed. Yes, it's on the wharves in Melbourne. Everything. Don Dunstan is paused, is is Poised waiting in Adelaide yes, to launch it at Adelaide Writers Week on, let's say, Monday yeah. or Tuesday. And this is Thursday. And Bob Sessions rings me from Melbourne and says, can't get the book off the wharves. There's a black ban on everything. <gasps> oh, no. They're not, none of it is moving. He said, I, I keep entreating them and I did that. No, nothing's moving. So I'm constantly checking with him and thinking what the implications of this are. 
uh, and eventually I say, well, far be it from the author to <laughs> intervene in this, but give me the name of the union guy that you're talking yeah. to, you know. Uh, so I ring him and he says, no, mate, I'm, I'm very sorry for you. No, nothing is moving on here. So I know roughly who I'm talking to, you know, and I paused for a long time. I said, well, that's seven years of work down the drain. Long silence. Listen, hang on, hang on, mate. I'll just go and see it. You know. And he goes one. and he says, I think we can do something. I'll be talking to Bob Sessions. Right? They bring in uh, a ute with a tarp over the back. Yep. They manage to get that through the picket line. Yeah. They fill that in the back with books for Adelaide. They get a car in at one stage. I, not that I see any of this, but no, I just no, hear No, no, you're told about yeah. it. Uh, so anyway, we have the launch. Wow. Bingo. What a great story. <laughs> So you are actually a repository of extraordinary knowledge and first-hand, you know, um, impressions of these remarkable, many, many oh, remarkable yeah, writers. Yeah, yeah. Did you record these interviews? Did you just take uh, notes? What? Well, both. Uh, I recorded most of them, and some of that stuff is in the National Library. I was going to say, um, you'd want it to be. Yeah, but it depended on... The availability of the person, yes. the ease with which one could set up recording, yes. uh, quite apart from anything else, uh, depended on the psychology of the person yeah. you're interviewing and yep. their mood for the day. Yeah. <laughs> it was, you know, quite incredible. For instance, Randolph Stowe, yeah. I saw in three different incarnations, very different incarnations. And when I was with him to get these beautiful photographs of Sand Springs, Merry-Go-Round in the Sea, you're going to ask me later, three books, right? Right. That's going to be one of them, okay. Merry-Go-Round yeah, in the very, Sea, yeah. about his being um, evacuated when the Japs looked like coming down the West Australian coast during the war yep. to Geraldton, uh, from Geraldton into his uncle's property at Sand Springs inland, right? Wow. And here I am. Happening to coincide, I said to his mother, "Look, I, you know, I know he won't be around. He'll be over in Britain." But uh, she said, "No, he's here. He's asleep, but he's going up there tomorrow." And I said, I, "I think I might follow him up." Yeah, oh, that'd be all right, you know. But he wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't talk to me. That was the first incarnation. Right. We were sleeping in the same Jackaroo's quarters, and so on, almost side by side. But I could hardly get a word out of him. Right. Um, that was the first incarnation. Uh, but I would say to him, I got to know how to handle it, you know. Uh, I'd say, look, I've got the car out there and I know the Ellendale pool means a lot to you. Um, we could go down. No response. Uh, and I'd wait for about 20 minutes and he'd come over and he'd say, I think we might go to the Ellendale pool. So I'd go down and I'd take photographs and talk to him about being stranded up the cliff there when he was a kid and yeah. so on and so on and so on. Um, so that was the first thing. The second was... His other, I've written an, an article about this, dual allegiances, A, to Western Australia and B, to South, uh, East Burgold Village in Suffolk, right? Wow. Where he's written beautiful books. Yeah. Beautiful books out of both places. Uh, and we, <laughs> we talked our heads off pretty well all night, uh, completely different, not realising that the Coke fire had a bird's nest in the chimney and that we were gradually asphyxiating oh, ourselves. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so that was the second. Yeah. And then the third was a difficult period when I was trying to see him. He'd moved to Harwich, Port Harwich, Port of Harwich, uh, as distinct from Harwich proper. Yes. And I won't, I won't go into the details of that one, but 
uh, we didn't manage to get to a stage where he was ready to talk. Was it because he was that, shy? Was he recalcitrant? Was he uh, uh, just... I think really shy would be the word. Yeah, shy, yeah. Uh, there's a certain shyness, yes. And I, I would, wouldn't know how to explain the quite drastic differences in mood, but, yeah. but well, a fantastic writer. Could not yeah. write a bad book. You know? Wow. Yeah. I have to tell you that reading many of the uh, mm. um, biographies in this book, mm. um, you're the first person who's ever really inspired me to really try with Patrick White. Mm-hmm. Um, you write so beautifully about him but with such insight mm-hmm. and in such a way that it's intriguing. You know, I'm really intrigued now by White's novels. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, mm-hmm. Patrick White is Australia's first Nobel, Nobel yeah. uh, Prize winner for yeah. literature yeah. and a truly remarkable writer. And you went on to write, <clears throat> some years later, this fabulous book, uh, Writer, A Working Guide for New Writers. Mm-hmm. Well, as an author, I have to say you could have called it just a working guide for writers. <laughs> I don't think it just applies to new writers. Yeah, yeah, yes, um, yeah. I actually found a lot of this very inspiring mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and very, very helpful in a practical sense. Good, good. But yeah. you write... You write a lot of really interesting things, but I'm just going to jump to Patrick White and what you say. Patrick White's prose doesn't explain. It reveals action and thought and motivation through suggestion, leaving the reader free to interpret on the one hand, but also with work to do to follow the depth of the story. It uses prose rhythms that match the story's movement forward. It has an idiosyncratic sentence structure not unlike poetry. Mm-hmm. It suggests the inner life of the mind, the place of memory and instability and intuition, which is, wow. Who um, wrote that? Well, actually, yes. <laughs> I, I have to say, in fact, just the grammatical structure of that sentence is absolutely superb mm-hmm. anyway. Beautiful use of semicolons and commas mm-hmm. and things, mm-hmm. which I love. But it's just a beautiful summation, I think, of, uh, uh, I think for many people, White is a hard-to-grasp author, mm, mm, you know, mm. you start reading. He was breaking very new ground mm. and the Australian social realist psyche wasn't ready for it and in some ways it still, still isn't. isn't, right? Uh, but uh, as I think I, I might have been talking to you earlier about this, uh, in my writing workshops I'm very often offering to students two pieces of prose. One mm. is by... John Morrison, Melbourne social realist writer yep. and a great writer. Uh, and the other is a piece of Patrick White from, uh, I can't remember which novel. Uh, but the difference between the two is that the social realist writer isn't into metaphor in the way that the poetic prose writer, Patrick White, is. So that, you know, it's the words and the sounds of the words mm. in the ear that show you the difference in uh, psychological approach, I suppose, to what life offers. <laughs> well, yes, and you talk about White as really having a musical quality mm. and also mm. almost like a painterly quality mm. where you get yeah. this sort of impressionistic... Well, he said he got more inspiration from painters than from other writers. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so do I. You know, my cathedrals are galleries. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Mm. Well, I'd like to talk more about your personal writing techniques in a little bit. Mm. But mm. just to continue a little bit, because you write so beautifully, this is just 
a really, really wonderful book. Is this still available? It should. It is, but <laughs> as with Thomas Keneally, you know, I'm interviewing Thomas Keneally and yeah. Bill Gola with his stacks of research books and so on, and he's saying, uh, yeah, this, I didn't keep enough oh. copies of that novel <laughs> and I didn't keep enough copies of that. Well, either. I think it should be put back in print. Yeah, actually. well, I, I was a print. This is, this is part of the writing game. I was yeah. approached to update it. Uh, but I did argue a bit about the royalty rate ah. and they decided not to come back to me. So I thought, well, wow. I, and I was working on, I think I was working on the novel at that stage. Yeah, it probably also was, I think. So I decided, well, I'll just let it slide. Right. Uh, it would need drastic upright, uh, rewriting now, yeah. of course, because you know, when I started writing, I was using a pencil and then, you know, innovation, a ballpoint pen, and then <laughs> a, my mother used to give me fountain pens and so on. And, and then a typewriter. Uh, a portable typewriter, mm-hmm. yes. And every, well, the whole of the manuscript for Australia's writers was on a portable typewriter so that if you'd made a blue, you were whiting out and all oh, that. Oh, yeah, sort of, what know, a mess, yeah, yeah. The early technology. <laughs> wow. Well, even having said that, and I, I hear you on the whole need to kind of update in terms of yes. what's available to writers in terms of actually writing the manuscript, but mm. in terms mm. of just its sound practical advice and its literary references to illustrate your points, mm-hmm. I think that's just mm. superb. Mm. And I actually love this. And this is going to lead me into talking to you a little bit about the Australian voice and what you think about that and to, which does refer back to Australia's writers. Mm-hmm. You write about White. Um, the novels and short stories that White produced in the ensuing years were not at first readily accepted in Australia. Mm. They were wrought like poetry. They had indeed the textures of music, the sensuousness of paint, but perhaps more importantly, they penetrated the boorish, swaggering, independent and intellectually complacent Australian and discovered in him or her perhaps gentleness or fatuous materialism or xenophobia, vengefulness, cruelty, violence, or a muddled, groping sort of religion. All this ran counter to the matey norm of much Australian realist (laughs) writing. The matey norm, yes. So I think that's a really remarkable piece of writing. Mm, mm. Do you still feel that way? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in many senses, Patrick White prepared the ground for people like Peter Carey, mm-hmm. right? And I'd be talking about the fat man in history at some stage probably, yeah. the early stories rather than even the later novels and so on. Uh, prepared the ground in many ways, I think, for Randolph Stowe, David Maloof. Uh, Tim know, Winton. Um, which may not have happened for decades after mm. if it weren't for the publicity he had through the Nobel Prize and the attention mm. it brought. And the other thing was his interaction, with, not that I was ever able to tune into this or observe this necessarily, but the interaction with people in the other arts, including actors and so on. You know, he was a, had a great breadth. What was he like to meet in person? Well, I didn't, I didn't ever meet Patrick White in person. Oh. He's, he's the only one of the living writers yep. who had said... Um, I don't want to do an interview. Oh. And I was very disappointed. Yeah. But I had to chase all sorts of other people's, you know, pictures of him and so on and so on. And there was quite a bit in the uh, in the media at that stage too, I suppose. Yeah. Including his political activism and mm. so on. You know, 
So when you talk about Australian intellectual complacency, talk a little bit more about that. What do you mean by that? And does it still apply, do you think? Well, <laughs> it's talk about the average Australian mm. and particularly the average Australian male giving the gender predominance of the male mm. point of view and patriarchy and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is reinforced. It, it comes from the bush worker, mm-hmm. I think. Mm. It comes from the unionist labourer. Uh, it comes from uh, Henry Lawson rather than Banjo Patterson, yeah. Banjo Patterson having a more privileged sort of background to Lawson. Uh, I think Lawson has, you know, not a lot to explain or excuse, but, uh, you know, uh, has a, had a lot of influence on that. Uh, we're just discovering things now about Lawson that we didn't realise. Frank Moore has his latest book, The um, uh, the Drover's Wife, yeah. uh, plunges into some of that quite interestingly. Uh, but, I mean, these are values from a different world when travel was on horseback yeah. and where and my, the family work, family history work that I'm doing at the moment, I can't help but come back and back and back to the importance of the horse. It's just mm. quite incredible, uh, which is a sideline to this. But, but to see where Lawson walked from Burke to Hungerford, you know, getting odd jobs on stations on the way, during the summer, you you can't believe how tough that would have been. Mm. Um, so, uh, I think some of our sporting interest arises out of that mm-hmm. uh, preoccupation with sport. I think, which is, and when you when you get to uh, find yourself co-editing a book of Australian sporting anecdotes, yes. you're coming across all sorts of other references that pick up on this. Um, Yes, pick up on this, uh, what am I saying, Um, well, basically labour-intensive, you know, tradition. Which really is, you're saying, is a a, a removed from the intellectual. Well, often it... it, We didn't esteem the intellectual. Historically... No, no, we didn't. We we didn't esteem the intellectual. Uh, And Donald Horne was talking about this and, you know, the apologetic sort of nature of uh, Australia's uh, attitude towards its artists. I mean, Mm, mm. we have punched far beyond our Mm. weight in painting, uh, I would suggest in literature, Mm. uh, especially if you're looking at population levels and so on. We've punched far above our weight, but the ordinary person in the street doesn't think about it in those terms. I don't think they think about it in those terms. But they do imbibe the stories, you know. Yes, indeed. Um, and, uh, I mean, one of the most serious pieces of industrial action that you could have would be for all the storytellers, and I'm a storyteller from way back and I'm dealing with storytellers from way back, if they said, right, no more stories for three weeks. Yep. And I mean all storytellers, these are journalists and creative writers and yep. Playwrights, etc., film producers, the whole <laughs> creative area. You know, uh, people the, would very soon notice that yeah, the dirt. something they're imbibing all every day, yeah. which they don't really think about. Yeah. It is interesting, though, because government in Australia is so particularly good at funding sport, and you know, that's right, that's um, right. 
activities, right. it's incredibly important that we yeah. do well in the Olympics, money. for example. And money, money lies just gets behind so yeah, much at yeah. such a huge level. Okay, yes. <laughs> because because the arts are not funded anywhere near no, uh, no, to the no. level that sport is funded, no, for example, that's right. That's right. which is which is sort of interesting. Mm. So intellectual complacency. It, how then? Okay, so I felt that, particularly reading your various books and poetry and things, that that certainly the sort of sixties, seventies, even to the eighties, we had this really rich cultural life that was really on the rise, but it mm. doesn't feel like that has continued, hasn't continued as a sort of burgeon mm. and grow, mm. if anything, the opposite. Mm. So how then do you arrest that? How do you...? I don't know that you can. I think you're part now of a global world mm. and global production of all sorts of forms mm. of art uh, in a way that uh, you just simply cannot avoid. So you've got to tune into that. Submission procedures are different, you know, if you're submitting to literary magazines and literary magazines are finding it very hard to survive uh, and this is because of technology that involves social media and uh, new ways of filming and ways of bringing stories to people with the pictures. Yeah. And TV is a classic example. Yeah. If you've got the pictures something relatively insignificant becomes part of the national news, you know. Fascinating. Pictures. Wow. <laughs> so a lot to think about in, in the in the broader macro mm. level, I guess. Mm. But now mm. I'd like to sort of come down to the micro level and mm. talk about your own writing and your mm -hmm. way. Your Because here you are, you're, you're prolific. You've written a dozen, uh, had a dozen pieces, you know, books published. Um, from, you know, Australian Sporting Anecdotes, mm. which is mm. a really quite delicious mm. uh, compilation of, mm. of fascinating stories. I love the one about Oppie, yeah. um, Hubert Oppenheimer, the, the great Australian cyclist, um, and Oppie pissing en passant. <laughs> How you do it yeah. on the trail, yes. <laughs> and he actually right. used to um, basically yeah. freely urinate yeah. while riding yes. uh, his yes. races. And the French apparently loved this yes, and yes. found it quite elegant, <laughs> which I find kind of amazing because it doesn't seem all that elegant to me. Um, and mm. then, of course, um, wonderful stories about Yvonne Goulagong as mm. a nine-year-old and mm. um, uh, Walter Lindrum, the mm. great billiard mm. player, who mm. whose skill I used to love watching Pot Black with mm. Eddie Charlton mm. when I was a child. And, yes. um, and But I love the story about Walter Lindrum, the great, Great billiard player of the 1930s. Remind yeah. me, yeah. Remind and me he what, had what a teacher who caned him for skiving oh, off yes. to the billiard yes. parlour yes. um, when he should have been at school. And yes. years later he was at a tournament yeah. and he spotted the teacher sitting in the front <laughs> row watching him and mm. he did this incredibly brilliant, I think it was like a cannon shot off the cushion and the ball hit the teacher in the knee <laughs> with acute pain. And um, later on, the teacher came and spoke to Lindrum afterwards and uh, said, oh, you know. That look, was a bad mistake. That was a bad, bad <laughs> shot, you know. And he goes, you don't think it was an accident, do you? <laughs> Let's just call it even. <laughs> I thought that was great. Yeah. So a lot of really great sporting anecdotes. But then, of course, you know, you've Writer's Guide, <laughs> this amazing novel, um, uh, Long Afternoon of the mm -hmm. World. Mm -hmm. uh, you wrote a history of... Tennis in Geelong, yes. which is actually also a history of Geelong. Well, yes. Very the, interesting. The story of that is when, when they knew that they were going to turn 100. And they were, the Geelong Tennis Club has been a long since a, a very significant club within the yeah. country and, yes. and so on. But in the 1920s, of course, it was very significant. Because the best uh, 
players in the world, including Norman Brooks, used to come oh. down every year at Easter and play in the Easter tournament. Oh. And it was a huge gala social occasion and yeah. balls and and uh, ferries bringing people down from Melbourne and so on and so on. Uh, so anyway, when when the club realised it was going to turn 100, I'm the only writer in the club, <laughs> aren't I? So I said to them, look, yes, I'll do the job, but I don't think you guys realise just how much work's involved yeah. in researching it and I have to do it in my own time and between lectures and so on and so on. So it's not going to be a story of rackets crossed and 6464. It's going to be tennis as part of the social fabric of this city. Yeah. And I had few people who had no idea of writing to contend with, but they eventually agreed to that, and I think they're grateful now they yeah. did agree to that. Because when I, when I began to research it here in what was then the Historical Records Centre, oh, yes. uh, which is now, of course, in the new library, mm, beautiful. Beautiful new library. Uh, I'd be working with Dr Cust, who beside me, and we're both working in those days on broadsheet newspapers this wide, and he'd be working at his table, I'd be working at mine. Uh, and uh, I'd hear the uh, girl from the desk come over to Dr Cust and say, Dr Cust, you've got a, a waiting room full of people there. <gasps> I think, oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> and then she'd wait a while and she'd dare to come back and say, oh, all right, and he'd close the broadsheet and go. Anyway, that was the way the research was done. But I began to realise as soon as I began to look beyond club records and so on to the newspapers, that I had a social history story to tell. So you then had to decide, and my editorial experience in Melbourne, which we might talk about, uh, the school paper and all that sort, had prepared me for looking at a double-page spread and saying, right, if you want social history in this, there's got to be a margin down the side where that stuff goes and the basic tennis history goes down here, you know, a layout thing. Yeah. Uh, And as with other technologies, the more the technology of printing changes, of course, the easier these things are to do, which I'd work, you know, with the school paper on letter uh, uh, letterpress, which is lead. Oh, wow. With gutters in each double-page spread that you couldn't do anything and you couldn't have text or illustration in them, so you had to work out ways of getting around that. Anyway, that, that's Part of the tennis story, yes. <laughs> it seems to me that it's actually all part of your whole writing story, your whole mm. book story. Well, um, tennis has saved me from going mad at those <laughs> Well, you were a competitive of... tennis player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Obviously very successful. Well, moderately successful. A lot of, lot of Melbourne pennant, which is the best yeah. way to be playing good yeah. competition tennis. Fantastic. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's been good. Well, Australia has an illustrious tennis history. Mm. Um, mm. We're still looking for our, you know, new rising mm. stars. I think there's a few on the horizon mm. looking mm. quite good, you mm. know. We've had mm. a bit of a dearth of champions yeah. on the world yeah. circuit. But but again, we're comparing our, our nationalism is requiring Australians, Yes. but the global market is just requiring good players. Yeah, that's know? right. And also, <laughs> of course, it's it, the spread of tennis is much greater than yes. it was yes. even yes. in the 1970s yes. and 80s, you know. And that's players part of the availability of... Indoor courts yeah, and so on, you yeah, know. Extraordinary. <laughs> so I'd like to um, talk to you a bit more about your, or a bit about your writing technique. How, so you've, what I'm saying was, you know, you've written three books of poetry, mm-hmm. um, some really wonderful poetry mm-hmm. too, um, and the book about the Murray, Australia's Writers, The mm. Writer's Guide, and a novel. So it's, it's a fairly eclectic, interesting. Mm-hmm. So is the writing technique the same 
for everything? Is it different? How do you actually work? Yeah. No, it, it definitely is different from book to book. Um, uh, I've kept this journal all these years. I've kept a journal which is not a diary. It's a, a thing that you might write in intensively for you know a couple of weeks, yeah. but then not confront again for another month or you know two weeks or whatever. Uh, so that has been a seed bed, if you like, of ideas because you're recording there what's really engaging you at the time um, and you are saying to yourself, well, I might get the chance to come back to that, but I might not, you know, family lectures, uh, production of Deacon course materials, all that, <laughs> all that stuff. Uh, but that's been a, a useful resource and it still is. It still is because some of your best writing is sort of off-the-cuff stuff mm. that you haven't got time to polish, but it goes. it's very direct. Uh, but as far as the planning is concerned, that uh, the front page of this is how I, uh, and I'm just engaging some people uh, uh, in, a, in workshops that are going to take place in March. Yeah where I'm going to be saying this to them, my planning sheet of paper, it's scribble paper. It's not going to be on the computer. Yeah. Um, it's going to have a margin down the right-hand side and I'm going to start thinking, right, okay, the job is this. What do I want to say about it? Da-da, da-da, da-da. Oh, yes, and it could also have, and over in this right-hand column go other thoughts right. that might be drawn into these basics, right? Don't forget to mention. So I've got this double spread going on, and I, I still seem to work that way. Is this for fiction this and is, non-fiction or for well, non-fiction? No, it would be more for uh, fiction and non-fiction, yeah. I would imagine, but sometimes you're getting a commission to do such and such. Okay. Uh, in fact, I get a lot of stuff to uh, request to contribute tennis entries for, you know, the Oxford right book of book of Australian sport and so on and so on and so on. Uh, and you'd be doing that sort of preparation for that sort of material. Yeah. Poetry, no, you're not. You're not doing that. You're scanning your brain for. Well, it's still what is engaging you at the time, but you're scanning your brain for something that you almost see as an, a painter. And this is where metaphor comes in. You know, I say in these writing workshops, uh, uh, most people, if poetry is raised with them and students in schools and so on, they'd say, oh, yeah, poetry is uh, short lines, rhythm, rhyme and so on. <laughs> I would be saying, yes, all of those things can be important, but the most important element in poetry is metaphor, saying, I'm looking at this, but I'm seeing that. Imagery, imagery, imagery. Uh, so you can't, you can't plan for that. It's got to arise from your gut almost in writing a poem. So it's a more organic process. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very, not a planned very, process. No, that's right. You actually say... Um, Poetry is the guardian of the language. Mm -hmm. So mm. what do you mean by that? Well, uh, metaphor and, and poetry requires, uh, <laughs> it sounds strange to say, but it requires an accuracy in the weight of a particular word right. that uh, a journal, a, a newspaper article doesn't 
and so on and so on. Uh, so in that sense, it's guarding the way Shakespeare and others would have used the language, which is being pilfered all the time and changed all the time. But it's 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 one of the ways of guarding that, right. you know. And I still get responses from my ex-students, you know, that go back 40 years and saying it's appalling, the editorial standards oh. now, you know, people can't even marry the singular and the plural mm, in their sentences mm. and so on and so on. Well, poetry won't let you get away with that. Right. But poetry is, by the same token, poetry is always, uh, and I say this in work, writing workshops, the essential thing is the possibilities and poetry explores the possibilities of words on a page or words heard in a way that no other area of verbal communication does quite, you know. So there's a, there's a density in poetry, a density of meaning from minimal numbers of words? Yes, yes. That's Be a good, that's a good. I think that's a good description of what's involved. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. you, I, I, in in this book, uh, turn left at mm. any time with care, mm. which I guess comes from that. Is it uniquely Australian that road sign? Do you think <laughs> yes. where you when, come to a an intersection, but you've got yes. a left hand turning yes. and you can? Yes. Uh, when we were choosing the title for this yeah. show, and I share this book with Jamie Grant, of course, who's a great poet. Um, we were talking about what the title would be, and I said we we might as well be, you know. Provocative, and it would stand out yeah, well. Yeah. And I love the implication: turn left at any time with care. care yes, <laughs> it's a great title. <laughs> um, I loved in Pelicans, Yanga, oh, yes. which I think is a really beautiful yes. poem. Mm. I think well, see, they... that arises out of the Murray Darling River system. Ah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. You say, "I think they fly my second coming." Mm. Mm. What do you mean? I love oh, it. Now you're asking me. I haven't looked at that yeah. poem for quite a while. I love that um, line. Well, my second coming. I'm, I'm not too good at explaining exactly what well, I had in mind to. at that stage, but um, there's another poem about birds, um, which is about ibis seen against the sun. Yeah. Now, the metaphor there that I'm using is sun's milk in their wings. Yes. Because the sun yeah. is coming through these white feathers. Yeah, you know? yeah. Now, that's a metaphorical statement, sun's milk, milk in their in wings. wings. Uh, yeah, my second coming, God, it sounds a bit religious, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that's um, what I thought. Yes. But, 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 and, but it's actually really evocative. I'd have to read. Look, I, yeah. honestly, we, we shouldn't afford the time now, but I, I'd no. have to reread the poem and remind myself of where that what that tails off, really. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> and Widower um, is, is really moving, a really moving poem about right. obviously um, a couple who've had a car accident mm. and she mm. has died. Mm. And mm. but Our next-door neighbours oh, in really? Mitcham. Yeah. Oh, well, it's only three very short verses, mm. but it's it packs a punch. Mm. It's really, mm. and I think that's the point, isn't it, mm. about poetry. Mm. You say this wonderful thing in... Um, the Working Guide for New Writers. In poetry, words can dart around a corner and bite you. Yes. And I just think that's just delicious, <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah. And it well, does. It's sort of... When, once you start trying to write a poem, there's always the unexpected and stuff that you didn't realise you had. Yeah, yeah. Plain yeah. statements in pure sentences mm, is another mm. thing you say. Mm, mm. Um, 
so that whole idea of metaphor, because when you talk about haiku, which of course is that wonderful yeah. Japanese form, yeah. five syllables, seven yeah. syllables, five syllables, um, it's the art of looking at one thing and seeing, seeing something else. That's right. That's right. So is that also like a metaphor for life, that that's what we do? Is that what, if you're lifting yeah. above the average perhaps, the average yeah. is when most of us just go through our life and everything yes, is and just exactly as you see it? Yeah, and we're not... We're not conscious of our observation a lot of the time. Yeah. No. But uh, as Hemingway says, once the writer stops observing, he's finished. That's it. Right. Uh, and you you do train yourself to observe, observe, observe and say, and to wonder. You've got to wonder. You've, yeah. If you're not wondering, if, if you haven't got what Ezra Pound said was two requirements of a writer, um, uh, undying curiosity yeah. and then the... Uh, what, what's his second? Uh, 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 something energy. I've forgotten the, the adjective he uses, but you've got to have the energy to do something about that conversion of curiosity. Okay. And I think that's a good way of looking at it. Um, do you find when you're actually in the physical act of writing, and some writers have talked to me about this too, and I certainly had the experience, that in your head, you'll have thoughts about something. Perhaps you've been incredibly curious and you've got some answers or you've got some considerations about what that might be or what it might mean, mm -hmm. and you've got the words in your head. But when you actually go to write <laughs> those words, it's almost like there's a kind of gap between the brilliant things yes. that are in your head <laughs> and what actually yeah. comes out on the page or on the computer screen yeah. or the typewriter. Yeah. Does that yeah. happen to you? Uh, yes. Or is that simply yes. a question yes. of... Fossicking. Yes, draft after draft right. after draft is my experience of poetry. Uh, I mean, some poems, uh, uh, I could pick a couple out of, uh, if I abscond and read you a couple of those if you wanted, uh, where they almost slip into your, um, slip onto your typewriter without you processing them. But right. You've, you've obviously done previous thinking somewhere else yes. to prepare you for that. You know, gift, <laughs> but by and large, you're still tinkering with words and particular lines, and and even placement on the page. Oh, okay. Uh, until the last minute. Wow. Yeah. So how do you know then when it's done? Well, you <laughs> heave a sigh of relief and you say, <laughs> "I hope, <sighs> I hope," and uh, you'll come into it next day and you'll say, "Yeah, that was a vain hope, wasn't it? Oh. That last line can't." stay like that or that's not the way to go out of it you know and you're doing this of course I'm, I'm I'm talking about this to students in writing workshops all the time uh, the drafting and redrafting is the basic act of writing there's no doubt about it so in writing poetry then how do you know what's the difference between a good poem and a bad poem and how does someone become a good poet or a great poet Mm, just ask me a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not that. It's only three layers and very difficult. <laughs> uh, who, who, okay, yeah. who is the arbiter of good or bad poetry? Who decides? Well, I would think the quite small proportion of people who in the population who do read poetry for pleasure, yeah. right, I think they're the arbiters. Uh, because they're starting at a fairly high intellectual level in being even interested in poetry and its difference from what they're getting in the newspaper or on TV or yeah. 
in a mobile phone or yeah. whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I think they're the arbiters of it probably. Uh, how you become a good poet, I think, is uh, it's a matter of what Ezra Pound is talking about, this persistent energy to keep trying out these possibilities on the page yep. and listening to them. Listening is very important. Uh, when I was working at the publications branch in number two, Cotton Street, Anzac House, right, yeah. I was very lucky to be in a room next door to Ron Simpson, R.A. Simpson, who was the poetry editor of the age and who was a beautifully condensed poet, a great friend of mine, you know, for over many years. Um and uh, he would say, look, when you get a poem to a certain stage, and I've just been going through this process recently, um, what you want to do is get in a room where nobody can hear you and belt it out right. as if you're giving it to an audience and it will show you the lines that are not wow. working. And I think that's very good advice uh, because it, it is the sound of the words and the rhythm. The rhythm is absolutely integral to poetry even though it's not, you know, um, regular. Yeah. It's irregular. But, the, you know, I often say to people, for instance, I've written a <laughs> written an essay on climate change, right, which right. is using a ploy, and a Deakin Contemporary History Research Group have serialised it on their website and oh. people have been very interested in it. Yeah. It's using a device... Of, of talking about dogs when down the track we're going to find social dislocation, what are these dogs going to be doing, you know, in the street and yeah. so on when yeah. nobody can feed them, blah, blah. But there's a line in that that I keep coming back to, which is, which could be, it's never the dog's fault, right? But rhythmically, this is in prose, rhythmically it's much better to say it's never the fault of the dog, Right. Right. Yes. So you're using passive voice, rhythm, yeah, rhythm in prose as well as poetry. Yeah. Even the way you stage down a paragraph with a short sentence as the concluder. Yes. And so on. It's yes. Rhythmic. Yes. It's rhythmic. Um, well, humans are born with a natural inclination yeah. for rhythm, yeah, yeah. cadence, yeah. and the right inflection. I think. Yeah. So, do you read your prose works aloud as you're writing them, or once they're drafted? Uh, some of it I do. Some of it I do because I'm very interested in the intersection of poetry and prose. Yes. And the short prose piece, which is sometimes called a prose poem. Yes. Right. Which is using much more than normal prose and elementary, rudimentary, useful prose. <laughs> It's using a lot of the elements of poetry that are not used elsewhere. Uh, and uh, they're very rewarding to write, but they, they are the sorts of things you would read again uh, aloud to see where the rhythm and where the word choice, you know. Because you do it in um, Available Light, which is your most recent poetry yeah, yeah, book. Yeah, um, yeah. The Gallery of Knowing would be a prose yes, poem, that, that's a, isn't yeah, it? That's yeah, right, that's right. Which is actually beautiful too. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I actually don't kind of know how you do it, <laughs> I think. Um, though I've been a bit inspired working through some of the um, exercises in your writer, the yeah. guide, you know, yeah. to writing, which well, I found. It, a lot of it is to free yourself from the requirements of using language in an absolutely utilitarian mm, way. Yeah, yeah. That, that's So it's art in language. Yeah, yeah. Poetry's the art form, yeah, yeah. I guess. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, Riverina Uncle, I loved. I love the right. poem. Um, is it in I, If I Abscond? Um, when my mother and brothers burnt oh, down the, the barn, yes. 1916, yes. or burnt down the hayshed. Yes. Absolutely superb. Yeah. And, and so, like, you, you convey the kindness of the father, the mm, kind of mm. understanding, gentle mm. love. It's quite extraordinary yeah, in the yeah. last verse, yeah. really. Yeah, that's right. That's you know. Right. Well, this is one of my mother's stories. Yeah. <coughs> well, I think to turn <coughs> into a poem was just fantastic. Yeah. Um, so how then do you – what's your writing um, discipline? You know, when you're going to write a new book or mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. how do you – in practical terms, what do you do? How do you set about well, <laughs> At this stage, having been uh, just over 50 for 31 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, at this stage, Very sensible. I have to pace myself and I have to know when I'm going to get the best value out of the time oh. I spend writing. Yeah. And the best value I'm going to get is in the morning, yep. not the afternoon. Yep. The postprandial nap <laughs> does not help writing, right? But uh, having said that, uh, Writing the novel, for instance, or even writing this monumental family stuff, mm. family history stuff mm. recently, uh, even writing Australia's writers. When the writing is going well, it's like somebody says, like trying to catch a lizard without its tail falling off, Lawrence Darrell. Oh, yes. Right? And when it's going well and you, you know you've got it and it's not the tail's not going to part, you know, uh, then you can have another burst of writing after dinner at night until midnight or 1am, oh. you know. It's rarer these days than it used to be, but it can still happen. And down at the church at Worry, where I only have to speak to heifers over the fence, oh. you know, there's no settlement No there. distraction. No no distraction. I can write whatever the <laughs> internal Combustion system, engine allows you what, to. Yes, that's right. Fantastic. That's right. That's right. So, okay, so... Really, the last question, the thing I'm really interested mm. in, because you actually write, I think, with a strong Australian voice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Landscape with Figures, one of your poems. Mm-hmm. Um, I brace against the sky and chop a boomerang across the wind. It rises like a teal, glimpsing next week beyond the hills, mm. drops back through the afternoon's arrangement of shadows. I mean, that's just fantastic, <laughs> you know, use mm. of language. But, of course, no one but someone who had lived in Australia would really be able to write that, chops a broom no, no, right. across the wind, yeah. you know, and that glimpsing next week beyond the hills. Yeah, yeah. I think you have to have an appreciation of yeah. the outback, the landscape. Well, see, I've always know. been, because of my uncle's farm in the Riverina, Culcairn, oh. north of Albury, yeah. which was where we used to go every Christmas uh, and spend time with my cousins and so on up there with the wheat and the sheep and the harvest and the heat, uh, I've just had that feeling all my life that this is where basically I belong. Yes, yes. Uh, so uh, I've been pursuing that. Even when I was at university, we used to have bush blocks in the Dandenongs, thank heavens. Oh, yes. My, yeah. uh, most people wouldn't. And the one at Emerald, I really, I used to look after it. I'd even ride from the Ferntree Gully train on my bike up there Uh and and think I was Wordsworth writing university <laughs> essays in this shack. Yeah. It was really a shack, you know. Uh, so that's where I got the first feeling for having, uh, not only for camping, but for having a 
I wasn't going to turn into a farmer. I thought I was when I was a kid, you yeah. know. And people said, you're going to have to be- have a bit of money if you're going to turn into a farmer. <laughs> um, oh, yes, right, okay. Uh, but anyway, those bush blocks have really provided the the origins of the church at Worry, I think, which I can still just manage. Yeah. But given that we are really an urban society mm. in Australia, mm. why is the Australian voice really just the voice of the bush or that sense of no. landscape? No. Is no. there an Australian vo- voice as such? Well, yes, I think there is. Overlaying Sydney and Melbourne, for instance, yeah. I think there's still an Australian voice, which is what you'll be hearing, but it's being modified all the time by um, immigrants from overseas and other cultures and so on. I mean, Melbourne's always been my city, Geelong less so. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't have probably, without having to come here for what was obviously going to be a very interesting professional um, role, um, I probably wouldn't have come to Geelong. My first visit to Geelong was in the middle of the war, uh, being brought down on the flyer and um, living with two English, well, an aunt, well, she was sort of an aunt with two cousins, two kids, um, at the stage where their husband had been imprisoned by the Japs in Changi and the Burma Road and so on and nobody knew where he was. That was my first experience of Geelong. Water, water, which we couldn't get to easily in Melbourne. But anyway, Melbourne is my city. This is coming back to what you were hinting at. Uh, Sydney also, because of the family history in Sydney, is very much one of my cities. It's, yes. you know, and a unique city because of its harbour. Yes, unique. yes, absolutely. Uh, it's nowhere like so, Sydney. Yes, the Australian voice, the Australian um, mindset uh, is still there, but it's being modified all the time in those places by globalism, by mm. technology, by instant gratification, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> Graham, it's been such a pleasure having you in the book cave. Thank you so much for coming in. It's been great to be talking with these bookshelves behind <laughs> yeah. us and a whole lot of words. It's, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before you go, mm. all of our guests in the book cave have to contribute their three books to our virtual time capsule, the three books that you would leave the world that they could read a thousand years from now. So we're keen to know what your contribution is going uh, to be. Yes, when you suggested that to me, I said, yes, the 30 books that you want. (laughs) The 300, maybe even the 3,000 books you want, right? (laughs) Okay. And I'm going through Ellen Garner's True Stories at the moment, for instance. Fantastic. Uh, in Cold Blood, we've been talking about yeah, new Truman journalism Capote, and so on. Yeah. The Bridge of San Louis Ray. I don't know oh, yes, yes. Thornton Wilder. School, yes. Uh, David Campbell's poetry about the Monaro. Uh, Peter Carey's The Fat Man in History, which is one of the ones I'm going to be choosing. Frank Morehouse's The Electrical Experience, which most people oh. won't even have no, heard of, heard, probably. No, no. Right. Hemingway, umpteen. Joyce Carey, Gally Jimson, Denise Levitov, Elizabeth Bishop, the you know, American yep. poets. William Stafford, who I actually met after admiring his poetry for years and having a whole lot of um, a whole lot of teaching principles in common about teaching things other than the essay in school. Yeah, and yeah. So on, so on. Evtushenko, Steinbeck, 
Randolph Stowe, merry-go-round in the sea and so on. So anyway, I would settle on, uh, and if I'm allowed a fourth, I would be including Patrick White's The Aunt Story. Right. The descriptions of the aunt travelling across America by train. Just classic. So that's one. Uh, The Fat Man in History, I noticed that Overland have just re-resurrected the first story in this, which is called Crabs, which is a brilliant story. I've used it many times with students. Uh, And these are his first short stories before he began writing the novels. Right. And they're they're facilitated, as I was saying, by the sorts of influences that Patrick White brought to bear. So so The Fat Man in History. Yeah, yeah, like that. Yeah. and this is very early Peter Carey. It's cer- oh my goodness! Look at that long hair and yeah. glasses and yeah, gosh, and praise from Frank Lawhouse too. Yeah, yeah. University of Queensland Press, mm. Fat Man in History. Gosh, mm. nineteen seventy-four. And Overland have just rerun Crabs. Yep. In its entirety, with commentary from a couple of people, I think. Yeah, yeah. great. Yeah, so that's one. Uh, the Electric Experience is about um, the south coast of New South Wales, which is where the, the Illawarra, right, yes. Nara, yeah. where Morehouse grew up and so on, which is where my family history starts in 1836. Wow. Right? Uh, Kiama, Jamboree inland from Kiama, and the now um, very well-preserved ancestral home that they built when they were able to transport all their stuff over the initial hills into this valley and so on and so on. But this is modelled very much on Frank's father's generation, Frank's father having been a a pillar of society in Nara, right? Yes. Uh, And it's brilliant not only in its... um, its way of storytelling, but also in the way the book is organised in terms of chapters and illustration and so on. Yeah. Forward thinking in that sense, Great. which I think Frank would have been involved in. Yes. So how many have I given you? Well, you've given me three if you I'll include you the three. aunt's story. And that's yeah. all you're allowed, I'm afraid. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So the aunt's story by Patrick White, of course. Yeah. The Electrical Experience, yeah. Frank Morehouse, yes. and The Fat Man in History by Peter Carey. Very good. Wonderful contributions to Very our good. virtual time capsule. Yeah. And Graham Kinross-Smith, thank you so much <laughs> for your time and insight into so many aspects of reading I've enjoyed and every minute of it. Thank you very much. In the Book Cave was recorded at the Mance with the assistance of 94.7 FM Geelong and produced by Corner Shop Studios, Jam Lab and Creative Geelong.